So let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is going to be an easy one for us. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 13. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 13. Here we go. You ready? Thou shalt not kill. Period. That's it. Thou shalt not kill. Our first message was, how do I know I'm saved? Then how do we know we're right? What happens when a baby dies? What happens when believers die? What, will what I love here be there? How do I discern the will of God? Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? Why do we need a family life center? How do I keep my temple? Tonight, with the Lord's help, we want to answer this question. Is God pro-life? Is God pro-life? Father, would you help me as I preach this and teach this? May I rightly divide your word of truth. May I handle your uh, word wisely. And uh, Lord, may Christ be lifted up in it. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're not just dealing with the obvious application of this, which is abortion. When we hear pro-life, we tend to, that's where our mind usually goes, is the subject of abortion. We're also talking about euthanasia. Euthanasia. Now, we, we need to make sure we understand our terms here. Euthanasia would be when somebody else makes the decision to end somebody's life. Okay, we're not talking about assisted suicide. That's different. Euthanasia is when somebody else, either a doctor or a panel of doctors or somebody else, makes a decision to end somebody's life for different reasons. But then you also have suicide, and that would include self-inflicted or assisted suicide. Uh, what about capital punishment? Capital punishment. Um, Self-defense or the defense of others. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that. And then the subject of war. So basically anything in which a life potentially could be taken is what we're talking about, not just abortion. Now, in this, we're going to have two objectives. Two objectives. The first is a very quick overview. Let me make this very clear. This is not intended to be this shock and awe treatment of these subjects in which I so overwhelm you with Bible verses and scriptural principle that it is settled in your hearts and anyone who's near you will be settled on the matter. That's not. I'm going to leave out a lot. It's not meant to do that. We'd be here all night all night long. And so I've opted not to do that because I think most of us are probably on the same page on most of this stuff. And so we'll not spend a whole lot of time doing that. But what we want to do is use that quick overview to bring us to what I'm going to call a consistent biblical life ethic, which basically means how do we view life from every perspective through the Bible? Okay, Because that's really what we need, is to have a consistent biblical life ethic. Because if we don't, if we don't, then we're going to make all of our decisions based on emotion and situational things and not based on principle. Now, y'all, I know where I'm coming from on this thing. I watched my father. My father, when he got cancer, they diagnosed him in October. He was gone in January. He flagged quickly. I stood and held my father's body while my mother changed his sheets. I'm telling you, if there's any situation in which I would say, you know what, it'd be better just to end it for him. That would have been the situation. But I've got a biblical principle in place that tells me that would be wrong. 
And when we start living based on our feelings, we get all kinds of crazy in our lives. We've got to get back to living on principle. By the way, wouldn't hurt our government to get back to living off of principle. Now, I'm not trying to get all political tonight, but if I see, if I hear one more person try to defend something using what Jesus would have done, well, Jesus paid all of our debts. Yeah, he paid our debts. He didn't make somebody else do it. If you want to use the Bible, at least crack it open and read it every once in a while. That's all I'm asking. My gracious. So all of our discussion is going to fall under this simple command that we just read. Thou shalt not kill. Now, a couple important things to note. First of all, I'm not saying the King James isn't a good translation. But a lot of your newer translations make a distinction between killing and murdering. And when the King James uses the word kill, it means murder. It doesn't mean all taking of life. There are times in which taking of life is not only biblical, it's advisable. And nor is it a proof text for vegetarianism either. They do that sometimes. They roll into Food City and slap a thou shalt not kill sticker on a piece of beef. Doesn't stop me from eating it, not in the slightest. Sometimes they'll put, they'll put the name, they'll, put, they'll give it a name. This cow's name might have been Tammy. Or whatever, you know. Well, Lord, thank you for Tammy. <laughs> Bless her and nourish her to my body. I just picked that name at random. I don't have anybody in mind. I usually use Sally. Maybe I should use Sally. Okay. So it's not, it's not a proof text for vegetarianism either. Well, let's jump into it or I'll get way off the mark, okay? Let's talk about abortion first of all. Now, those of you that have children in here, I'm not going to get into everything that we could, okay? So don't, don't get too nervous, all right? We're going to leave out all of the horrible terrible things involved in the procedures and all of that. I think most of us have a pretty good feel about how all that goes and and know that it's monstrous and terrible. Let's go ahead and define abortion for our purposes. I don't know if you can read that or not, but I'll read it to you. Any outwardly induced termination of a pregnancy that is in reality the intentional destruction of a baby at any point from conception to birth. That's an abortion. Okay. Um. Like I said, we won't go through the methods that are monstrous and wicked, but it really comes down to two questions. Abortion comes down to two questions. First of all, is the question of personhood. It's actually not a matter of life. Anybody that has any intelligence at all will tell you there's life going on in there. There's life. It's a question of personhood. Is that child... A person. And if that child is a person, then, then it, it, it follows that that child is, is, is entitled to certain rights. Okay. At what point does God consider a life to possess personhood? All right. Go to Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. I'll start reading, and you just try to keep up, okay? And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe, talking about John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, it's six months, six months along, okay? The babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, that was just a coincidence. How many of you, how many of you ladies that have ever carried a baby know that baby does respond to stimulus? 
Crystal will tell you, our kids knew my voice. More so Claire than Asher, I think, but they did. They respond to music. They respond to things that startle them. They have dreams. They jerk and kick and bless your heart, ladies. They wear you all out. Okay? So at six months, would it be reasonable to conclude that's a person? Let's go back a little ways. Let's go back in the process. How about Psalm 51, verse 5? Actually, no, Psalm 139, 13. I have those out of order. Psalm 139, 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. When the psalmist refers to himself in his mother's womb, is he a me or is he an it? He's a me. So he's saying, as I developed in my mother's womb, I was a person. He's not at all a saint. Well, maybe he was. I doubt it, though. But Dr. Seuss had it right. A person's a person, no matter how small. That came from the second chapter of the book of Horton, Here's a Who. But then you go back to David, Psalm 51, verse 5. David, when he was repenting of his great sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, he said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He was already a me at the moment of his conception. Now, we can get into the medical side of that and how the chromosomes are already in place and the, you know, you know, the genetics and all that. We can get into all that. But I think scripturally, we're on good ground to say that God considers a person a person at the moment of conception. Now, I realize I'm leaving out a lot, but we'd be here all night. So this is just meant to whet your appetite, go home, study it for yourself. But it's not just a question of personhood. It's a question of value. Because are there people that everybody would admit are people, but we don't value them like we should? Nursing homes are full of them. And there are people out there, yeah, though they'll give you that. Yeah, they're they're a person, but 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 they're not able to they're not able to live on their own, so they're not they're not really worthy of rights. Remember that next time you're in an accident and somebody has to take care of you. Does that mean you forfeit your value as a person? Certainly not. Now, Exodus 21, verse 22. I want you to see this. Let's all get there. Exodus 21, verse 22. This is so fascinating to me. Exodus 21, verse 22. We're talking about the value of that that child, the value of that person. Exodus 21, verse 22, if men strive, that means they're fighting, and hurt a woman with child, which, by the way, could include accidentally doing so. Okay? In fact, I think it probably means that. That they're not targeting that woman, but in the fight, they hit that woman with child. Okay? If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, that means she delivers prematurely. Okay? It sends her into labor. And yet no mischief follow, which means there is no harm to the baby or the mother. Okay? That's what it means. 
So, so they've hit this woman. She's delivered prematurely. She's okay. The baby's okay. Watch this. He shall be surely punished. According as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determined. So even if there's no harm, he still has consequences. But what if there is? Watch this. Verse 23. And if many mischief follow, which means the baby dies. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life. There's no other way to interpret that, y'all. If that baby dies, that is a capital offense. It sounds to me like God sees that as a valuable person. Okay? Now, if we need more convincing, let's compare that with the punishment for somebody who accidentally kills another human, another adult. And we see that in Numbers 35. And I'll just give it to you quickly. There were cities of refuge that were set up. And if you accidentally, involuntary manslaughter, you accidentally killed somebody, and it was determined to be so, you would flee to one of these cities of refuge, and as long as you stayed in there until the high priest that was currently in office died, you were safe from the manslayer. But if you came out of that city, it was fair game. So there was still a punishment, but it wasn't death. Right? But what's it say happens if you accidentally kill a baby? Death. So what do we take from that? It appears that in some circumstances, God places a higher premium on the life of an unborn child than he does in some adults. That's how I see it. When you add in Proverbs chapter 6, these six things that the Lord hate, hands that shed innocent blood, I think we are safe in concluding that God is against abortion. Okay? Let's keep going. I know we could stay here all night. But let's go to euthanasia. The word literally means good death. And for our purposes, we're going to, we're going to put everything in one category. We're going to talk about physician-prescribed death as well as physician-assisted death. What's the difference? Somebody is in a comatose state, they're in a vegetative state or whatever. Somebody else is making the decisions for them. Um, and the decision is made not to stop life support, but to actively kill that person. And here's the term that they'll use a lot, quality of life. Well, what kind of quality of life can they have? And I'm sorry to tell you, there's a whole lot of people. It's not about the quality of life of the patient. It's about the quality of life of those that have to deal with the patient. Now, I'm not minimizing what some people have gone through taking care of their loved ones. I'm not. I'm not. But we're going to see that the Bible doesn't allow for either. Physician-assisted death would be somebody has made the decision they don't want to keep living in this state, and they get help to end their lives. Now, the Bible records a few instances of suicide, but it doesn't make a whole lot of commentary on it, and there's not much else to go off of. So let's look at some principles. When the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not do this, let's look at some principles, okay? So principle number one, 
God is the giver of life. Where does life come from? God. Okay. Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. All right, principle number two. If God is the giver of life, then God is the arbiter of our lifespan. It's his call how long our life lasts. Okay? Hebrews 9, verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Who makes that appointment? God does. All right, principle number three. God is the giver of life, and so God is the arbiter of our lifespan. And so here's principle number three. Man should not seek to take on God's responsibilities. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what do we conclude with this? This this, This is a situation that can be really filled with emotion. Again, back to my dad. The man laid there, a shell of himself. Horrible pain. I mean, yeah, he was on palliative care, but, but it was to the point where if, if he was at all awake, he was in pain. And if he was not in pain, he wasn't with us at all. It's real easy to let your emotions take you to a place that you normally wouldn't go. But I'm reminded of something, Brother Bruce, that Bob Jones Sr. always said. It's never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. Never. Well, Andy, they're suffering so bad. I get it. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make light of that. And I'm not, I get it. But if we believe that God is the giver of life and that God is the arbiter of our lifespan, and that we're not supposed to take on his responsibilities and play God, then we have to put these things in his hands. We have to. This is an issue that must be decided by the principle that only God has the authority to end a life unless he has clearly delegated that authority in a given area. That we're going to see there are some areas in our lives where God has delegated the authority to take life to certain people. He has. Now let me, let me touch on some things real quick before we move on. This isn't in my notes or anything, but I just want to talk to you for a second. We are not talking about somebody is in a vegetative state, there is no hope, and a family has to make the difficult decision to suspend life support. That's not what I'm talking about. Now, obviously, you should pray and you should be fully informed before you make such a decision, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about looking at somebody and saying, you know what, their quality of life is not what it should be, and I think the merciful thing to do would be to go ahead and kill them. That is not right. It's not. I don't have the authority to decide that for somebody else, and I don't even have the authority to decide that for myself. And by the way, let's, let's, let's put in suicide with that, too. Just a personal suicide attempt. Is that a sin? Yes, it is. Can Christians get so 
beneath their difficulties and circumstances that they entertain that notion? Yes. Do they lose their salvation for committing suicide? Absolutely not. If you're saved, the manner of your death means nothing when it comes to your destination. And I hear that a lot. Somebody commits suicide, they go to hell, right? The Bible didn't say that anywhere. Anywhere. Okay. Um, It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It's sacrificing forever on the altar of the immediate. And I'm going to tell you, if I can be honest with you, and I hurt for people that have gone through that, but it's one of the more selfish things you can do too. It leaves behind a lot of carnage and damage to people who love you. If if you've ever considered it, I beg of you, talk to somebody. Let somebody love on you and show you that your life is worth living. By the way, whenever we make these decisions, be it for ourselves or for others, we're pretending as though God doesn't have the power to fix things. I mean, it's just like selective abortions for, you know, when a child has Down syndrome or something like that. How horrible is that? How many of us know people or even even have children that, that we can't imagine their lives without them? And God's used them so mildly. How dare we think about ending that life before it started? We're not God. We're not God. By the way, something else this isn't talking about is when you've come to the point where you don't try anything else. You know, if somebody has cancer, well, we could try this, and you've tried 15 things already, and it's just gotten worse, and you finally say, you know what, I'm just going to leave this to God. That's not what we're talking about either. We're talking about the active ending of someone's life or your own life beyond normal decline. Okay, everybody understand that? Okay. It's just like with, with abortion. You understand we're not talking about ectopic pregnancies, right? That, that, that's, that's not the same thing. I've, I've counseled with people that were just racked with guilt over that. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Anyway. All right, so let's talk about capital punishment. This is where we get into one of those times that God has delegated authority to end a life in some cases. Okay? Here's the question. Does the state, I mean the government, have the right to take life within certain circumstances? And the answer is yes. It does. Whose idea was government? Who came up with government? God. It's the second institution. The first was the family in the Garden of Eden. The second was, was government there with, with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And so if God came up with government, who determines the parameters of the death penalty? I would submit to you that God does. God determines the parameters of the death penalty. How many instances of the death penalty... I can't read my own typing. We would, we would say that we know many instances of the death penalty within the law. If you read through the Pentateuch, you see all kinds of things you can get killed for. Okay? So let's, let's leave that out, and let's look at before the law and after the law. Okay? So let's start with pre-law. Pre-law, Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Let's go there. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. This is before the law. This is pre 
law, not to be confused with pre-law, the major in college. Genesis 9, verse 5, and surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, at the hand of every man. I'm sorry, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Did capital punishment exist pre-law? Yes, it did. Now how about after the law? Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse number 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God, the servant of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. Listen to this. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Why do you bear a sword except to kill? Now, once again, there are parameters here. This is meant to be a punishment for evil and certain types of evil. There are parameters. But as a general principle, does God give authority to the state to practice capital punishment? Yes. Acts 25 verse 11 is an interesting one too. Paul is speaking to Festus. And listen to what he says. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. If I'm Paul and the death penalty is wrong, it's immoral, I'm going to argue against the death penalty. But he didn't. He, he acknowledges that the death penalty is a reasonable response in certain cases. Now, I'm leaving a whole lot on the table, I know, but we're going to get to it in the next section, okay? Given the same points are in place in a government-sanctioned war, we're going to let that argument stand for both. Now, I'm not saying that every, every war we've ever been in has been a just and righteous war. That's not what I'm saying. But are there times in which it is right that we went to war and that we killed people? The answer is yes. I'm glad we went and took out Hitler. Hitler needed taken out. I know we didn't kill him personally, but we helped. We, got him, we, we pushed in just like, well, the Russians are the one that got to him first. But anyway... Well, preacher, I think we should just let Hitler go. No, 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 no. Hitler needed to be taken out. There are just wars. Not all of them are, but some are. And in that case, a Christian need not beat themselves up needlessly over whether or not they have murdered. Because it's something sanctioned by the state. It's in the right situations. What do we take from that? God gives governments the authority to take life in capital punishment and war under certain circumstances. All right? Now let's talk about defense, the defense of self and the defense of others. Jesus encouraged it. Did you know that? Everybody likes to paint Jesus as a pacifist, but he wasn't. Luke chapter 22, verse 36. Then said Jesus unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. 
That's a King James word for a leather bag that you kept your stuff in, which I guess is a purse. But it wasn't a feminine thing in Bible times. So, fellas, that don't mean run out and buy your favorite purse. He that hath the purse, let him take it. And likewise, his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Jesus did not believe in sword control. He said, sell your garment. Your garment was the most important thing you had because sometimes that's all you had to keep you warm. He said, better for you to have a sword than a garment. Now, why would he tell you to buy a sword? Except for self-defense. Boy, that flies in the face of the pacifist Jesus that people want to push on us, doesn't it? Jesus encouraged it. Would you agree with me that God expects us to protect the innocent? Proverbs 6, verse 16, These six things that the Lord hate, a seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Remember in Matthew 25, Jesus talked about doing it to the least of these. We have the whole of Scripture teaching us this principle that God expects us to look after those that can't look after themselves. I said who can't, not who won't. I'm about to go political again. Would you agree with me that God expects us to provide for our loved ones? First Timothy 5, the, the context is financially and, and taking care of their material needs. But is it a stretch to say that God expects us to provide protection for our families too? But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Hey, folks, I, I appreciate law enforcement. I have many friends in law enforcement. I thank God for them. But it's not their job to protect my family. It's mine. It's mine. My conclusion from that is that there is no biblical prohibition against defending oneself or others. I'm just going to tell you, God forbid, God forbid, if somebody enters this school with the intention of hurting these kids, they're not going to meet a bunch of pacifists. They're going to meet somebody in the afterlife is who they're going to meet, one way or the other. And I don't have a problem saying that. I, I want it to be I want it to be the worst kept secret in Wythe County and beyond that this school is armed. Legally, it is legal, but it's armed. So if you think we're an easy target, and I'm not inviting that, but I'm just saying I don't mind people knowing. I don't mind people knowing that we will defend these kids with deadly force. That should be a no brainer. And to us it is. And God's fine with it. Now, all of this, I have left out so much. I have skimmed over so much. This was not intended to be my magnum opus on, on the issue of life. But what I want to get to is formulating a consistent biblical life ethic. What we use, the principles that we use to make all of our decisions when it comes to issues of life. Number one is that all humans are created in the image of God. That matters. Hey, friends, animals aren't. Now, I'm not saying go out and be cruel to animals. I'm saying, yes, enjoy your animals. That's not what I'm saying. But when, when people try to elevate animals to be just like humans, that's just not right. They're not made in the image of God. We are. We are. 
And so with that in mind, because all humans are created in the image of God, then all human life is precious. All human life is precious. Abortion destroys life. Suicide of any kind destroys life. Euthanasia destroys life. All three ignored God's potential for healing and restoration. Whole life is precious. Third principle. We have a responsibility to follow God's instructions regarding protecting life. Well, capital punishment, that's inconsistent with a good life ethic. No, capital punishment removes those who do not cherish life. I think it's perfectly consistent. It removes those who don't cherish life. Now, my understanding of Scripture, what are capital offenses? Murder. Murder is a capital offense. I think sexual assault ought to be a capital offense. Rightly defined. Rightly defined and rightly, especially when it involves children. I was going to tell you right now, you, you, you do something like that to a child, you ought to be out of this world. Amen. You know. I don't know if I'll go as far as the old days when cattle rustling was a capital crime. I'd rather you not steal my cattle, but I don't know if you should die for it. My point is this, if it's a crime that shows a disregard for the preciousness of life, it needs to be dealt with as such. I want to go further, but there's kids here. Next principle. All humans are created in the image of God, therefore all human life is precious. We have a responsibility to follow God's instruction regarding protecting life. Now, what happens when there aren't explicit instructions? Then we use the whole of Scripture to make our decisions. That's how we know what to do in cases of suspending life support, ectopic pregnancies, things that are very difficult, and we don't exactly know what we should or shouldn't do. Then you go to the Scriptures. You ask the Holy Spirit, what should I do? Number five. I hate to have this so late in the message, but don't worry, we'll bring it back to something good. Never forget how far men can go into wickedness. When we, when we deal with issues of life, we must always remember the unintended consequences and how far things can be taken. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you two examples. There was a time in my lifetime that nobody sanctioned assisted suicide. Now, Switzerland, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Canada, Colombia, Australia, New Zealand, and 11 states in the District of Columbia in the United States allow for assisted suicide and or euthanasia. Now, the three at the top with the asterisk, Switzerland, Netherlands, and, the Bel- and Belgium, allow for it with children. In fact, Belgium just recently was the first country to execute a child. Now, 
Now listen, we're only a step away from some, and I'm not a tinfoil hat wearing guy normally, but we're only a step, full, step, step, a step away from some panel somewhere deciding whether or not you deserve to live or die. We've got to stand for life, y'all. And not just unborn life, elderly life, infirmed life, because all life is precious. This next one, I hate to even put it up as a, as a resident, a native of the Commonwealth of Virginia. This still haunts me. Our last governor. The infant would be delivered, the infant would be kept comfortable, the infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired, and then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. He can spin that all he wants to, but that man came out in favor of infanticide. It's wicked, it's vile, it's satanic, and it's hellish. And the people that argued for Roe v. Wade, most of them would never imagine that there'd even be a discussion in this country of allowing a child to go to full term and then killing it. But that's how far we can go. Never forget the unintended consequences of not having principles that are biblical regarding life. This is where it goes. Conclusion is yes. God is pro-life. I'll give you some verses and we'll be done. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. For God so loved the world that he gave the only, his only begotten Son that whosoever liveth and believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, John 10, The thief cometh not, but for to kill, steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life that they might have it more abundantly. Here's the last one. John 20, verse 31, But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you might have life through his name. Is my God pro-life? My God is life.